Seltzer Kings podcasts. Hello, I'm Gavin St. James, the junior producer for What the Hell Were You Thinking? It is June, and that means it is our new annual Pledge Drive Month, where we ask you to support What the Hell Were You Thinking and all the fine podcasts on the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network. It's also the month of host Dave Bledsoe's birth, and he feels that alone should compel you to help in any way that you can. Of course, he would prefer that help in the form of monetary compensation via our Patreon, patreon.com slash whatthehellpodcast, but he would only use that money for liquor, cigarettes, and the company of sex workers. Those poor women. No one should have to endure that. So perhaps you will feel as queasy as I do about that. You can also help by recommending the show to a friend. Take their phones, follow the show on their podcast app, or perhaps spam them on their social media. It helps others find the show and understand the living hell I endure every week working with that man. Also support the good shows on the network. Head over to SeltzerKings.com and find something that does not have a raging alcoholic egomaniac. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. No, no, Gavin, not like the Gilbert and Sullivan Pirates of Penzance. Like Napster, LimeWire. Oh, God, I don't know why I try to explain these things to you. Yes. The following podcast contains... Obscenities and profanities. I told him to move on, but he continues to use profanity. That is, if you've absorbed enough profanity. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asked a simple question. When you thought I was actually going to pay for this music that I want to listen to, what the hell were you thinking? This is episode number 317, It's a Pirate's Life for Me, Part 1, Analog Days, where we talk about the foolish optimism of thinking people would pay for music if they didn't have to. Stay tuned. The What the Hell Were You Thinking podcast is brought to you by Dieter, the music man's sheet emporium. Are you in market for all great songs by the greatest composers of music history? Of course you are. But why should you pay for huge tomes of music fit only a few hit songs like Eine Kleine Nacht Musical, Concerto for Two Violins in D Majors, and then a whole bunch of filler songs that no one wants to hear? At Dieter, the music man's music emporium, we offer music by the song, not by the book. Pay for only what you want, not what the publishing houses want you to have. Is it legal? Eh, nine. But what they don't know won't hurt them, yeah? Roberts had grown so rich, he wanted to retire. So he took me to his cabin, told me a secret. I am not the Dread Pirate Roberts, he said. My name is Ryan. I inherited the ship from the previous Dread Pirate Roberts, just as you will inherit it from me. The man I inherited from was not the real Dread Pirate Roberts either. His name was Cummerbund. The real Roberts has been retired 15 years and living like a king in Patagonia. Thank you. Then he explained that the name was the important thing for inspiring the necessary fear. You see, no one would surrender to the Dread Pirate Wesley. So we sailed ashore, took on an entirely new crew, and he stayed aboard for a while as first mate, all the time calling me Roberts. And once the crew believed, I... He left the ship, and I have been Roberts ever since. Except now that we're together, I shall retire and hand the name over to someone else. Is everything clear to you? When I was about 12, maybe 13, my parents gave me their console stereo system. Now, if you have no idea what the fuck a console stereo system is, 
Imagine the Griswold family truckster, but with speakers. You may think you hate it now, honey, but where do you drive it? Included in the transfer of the finest wood box audio technology the 1970s had to offer were a treasure trove of country music albums and Elvis 8-track tapes that as a kid, I was not at all interested in listening to, but as a middle-aged man, I would be jamming out to right now, much to the despair of my neighbors. I said hello, Mary Lou, goodbye heart. Goodbye heart, sweet Mary Lou, I'm so in love with you. I'm in love with Mary Lou, Mary Lou, that we we never part. So hello, Mary Lou, goodbye heart. Stadler Brothers. As I grew older and the satanic panic grew more intense, there came a time when I began to grow interested in different genres of music than classic country and Elvis. So it was that when my parents forced me to sell off my Dungeon of Dragon collections to keep my sweet Lord Satan from taking my pure and innocent young soul, I used the money from that sale to finance the purchase of record albums, and because I was pissed at my parents, they were the loudest, darkest, fucking heavy metal albums I could find. Hell, Satan! I had to thread a pretty fine needle, though, because I didn't want my parents to figure out how fucking awesomely satanic the albums were, so I stuck with plausible titles and bands like Venom or Merciful Fate or Slayer, knowing my, that my unknowing parents would check them and just see them as me being a... Doing teenage stuff. And when it came to buying music, I was also pretty limited for what was available at the base exchange, the substandard Walmart of living on a military base. Nothing. There is nothing here. So finding really good music was a problem for most of my early teenage years and didn't improve when we moved to Idaho, which as far as metal meccas go, was about like you would expect in a culturally Mormon society in the late 1980s. I was on the prowl for Bathory albums and all I could find was Bon Jovi's Slippery When Wet. I'm sorry, Bon Jovi? Absolutely! So most of my albums came in the form of cassette copies from my friends who had once lived in civilizations with things like real record stores. It was the analog Napster of the 1980s. This is not a show about Napster. Next week's show is. This week is about all the ways people stole music before the internet came along and made music piracy fun and easy. And makes you dream of simpler times. For as long as there's been music, music has done two things. Robbed the creators and made the distributors extremely fucking rich. Back in cave days, the Grok, Tok, and Ock trio would spend weeks composing the Songs of the Hunt, complete with a kick-ass drum solo by Ock, before the Harvest Festival of the Blood God, Blood God of Jalors. Then, when the festival came along, they would play their offerings, and Chief Glorg Bigcock would stand up, claim credit for the song, take all the offerings and the nubile young virgins who were there to get with Grok the lead grunter of the trio, but when they learned that Glorg Bigcock had access to all the fermented bean curd, they went with him. Grok, Tok, and Ock were left holding their puds, wondering what the fuck had just happened. What had happened was, was like most musicians, they didn't read the fine print of their contract, and that mammoth meat they got in advance to write the songs of the hunt gave Glorg Bigcock full rights to the songs once they were written, and in fact, because the woolly rhino sacrifice was just a little light this year, they actually owed Glorg Bigcock more meat, and now they would need to sacrifice talk to the blood god of Jalors during the solstice. That's capitalism, babe. 
Then for centuries, kings would put on festivals for the people as a reward for not rising up and killing him and his court. And the people were happy because they got to hear the latest madrigal come around and play while a bunch of criminals and heretics were put up on the gallows. Or Sir Shitsalot gets knocked off his horse by the king's preferred knight. It's a sports metaphor. But then the kings got tired of putting on free concerts and told people they had to go to church for free music. But unless you were going to a black church, church music really fucking sucks. It's about Jesus stuff. And the good musicians only played for the nobility, which meant the people who wanted to hear the music but couldn't play them for themselves had to find other ways to get it. Thus began music piracy. During the halcyon days of classical music, which I guess they just probably called music, the great composers weren't playing for the masses. They were playing for the people with the money. But anyone with a good ear and a little talent could imitate what they heard, which is how you got Baroque cover bands like Johann Sebastian Rock and the Rock Tones, who would perform Bach tunes in taverns and music halls all around Germany. This did not happen. Well, you can't prove it did or it didn't, so let's just say it did for the sake of the story. Either way, if one wanted to hear the hot sounds of the 17th century, it was you were either rich or worked for someone who was rich or heard it from people that probably weren't supposed to be playing it. Sound familiar at all? But it was really the printing press that made real music piracy possible. Man, that printing press, it really... And ruined everything! Where before copying sheet music was a laborious process, carefully transcribing lines and hand-drawing the notes on the sheet, be it a cuneiform tablet or a sheepskin parchment, meaning there was no real money to be made in stolen music. But when the press came along, you could print up page after page with the lines easily already on there and then hand note everything. And then later on, you could actually print the music score from the press. By the mid-19th century, sheet music was the way music was distributed. And it didn't take long to figure out that if you had access to a press, you didn't really need to pay the creators to print off their music and sell it to folks to perform on their own. Piracy. Piracy, huh? From the website haveyouheardit.com, quote, Although complaints of intellectual misappropriation go back to the ancient times and the term piracy was connected to intellectual property in the late 17th century, music piracy only became regarded as a structural problem with the advent of the music industry in the late 19th century. Before that, musical scores were often reproduced without the consent of those who had written them. Copyright protections as we know them today did not exist, and the reproduction of a composer's work without any remuneration to him was very common. Although there were some composers who were cautious for republication, such as Mozart, Law Lawsuits about the illegal reproductions of music before the emergence of a music industry are extremely rare. In contrast with books, reprints of musical scores were even reissued unauthorized and were often altered for paying clients. Republication was not considered illegal or even immoral, unquote. It wasn't until much later music was even considered for copyright protection. Books, paintings, even photographs, as pretty much as soon as they were invented, all protected. But music languished far behind. But then, like they said... In the 19th century, something changed. Would anyone like to guess what changed? Is there any money involved? Give that pod pal a prize. Quote, it was only with the emergence of music of the music industry in the late 19th century that a musician could expect any additional payment for a performance. The live character of music, the inability to turn to copyright, and the tradition to alter musical scores without having to ask permission ensured that in deep into the 19th century, music piracy was not regarded as a problem, unquote. So as long as it was, it was just the individual musician being ripped off, it wasn't piracy. 
But when a publishing house goes to all the time and expense of printing a book of music for resale and you could just buy it cheaper from Dieter the Music Man on Strudelstrasse without the publisher getting a cut? No, that should not stand. And for years, governments, and by this time we're talking about our Congress, dithered about what to do about sheet music piracy, essentially putting off doing anything about the problem until it was much, much bigger. You know, kind of like what they're doing with climate change. What really turned up the heat on the fire was Edison's phonograph. Now music could be recorded, distributed, and played by individuals who couldn't even play a note on those shitty recorders they made us learn in first grade. What they could do was buy music that other people recorded and play it at home. And then Marconi's little invention that was initially intended to be a way to communicate, oh shit, my ship is sinking over long distances, the wireless telegraph began to advance to the point where it could reach further and do more than just beep a Morse signal when your ship has hit a fucking iceberg. And by 1920, you could send music and voices over the airwaves into radios at home. People liked that. People wanted more of that, and other people would be willing to pay to the people for the, for the people who liked it for their attention and their ears. Do you know who was still not getting paid? The musicians who were making all the fucking music people wanted to hear, but were being told, You got screwed, dude! So finally, Congress got around to figuring out how the hell to make it work. From LearnLiberty.org, quote, But there was a rub. How exactly would copyright reform work? The songwriters were mad because the companies making discs, wax cylinders, and player piano rolls used their music without authorization or compensation. They demanded both. The talking machine companies wanted to record performances of the written music for free. If forced to pay royalties to composers, then they wanted to have a copyright for their own recordings too. With the Copyright Act of 1909, lawmakers set up a system that lets songwriters and music publishers earn a royalty when their songs were recorded. What Congress did not decide to do was provide copyright for sound recordings themselves. It's just too confusing. And in the progressive area, anti-monopoly sentiments remain strong in American society. Copyright still looked too much like a monopoly. The curious result was that sound recordings seemed to lack copyright protections, and pirates noticed. For decades, bootleggers operated in the shadows of the U.S. economy, recording live performances of operas, copying out-of-print jazz and blues records for connoisseurs, and sometimes simply making a quick buck. The mafia occasionally pirated pop hits, though many bootleggers were just enthusiasts of hard-to-find music. Throughout, they could point to the law and say they were not violating it because sound recordings weren't protected under the Copyright Act. Unquote. And this is more or less the way of things for decades. There were pirate albums out there, but they weren't technically illegal. And honestly, they weren't really costing anyone a lot of money. ASCAP, the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers, was policing the record labels. And pretty soon, it was joined by the Broadcast Music Incorporated, who policed stage, screen, radio, television, and jukeboxes. To make sure they were paying for the right to play music, and jukeboxes were a huge problem for anti-piracy orgs back in the day. You might have noticed that drunk people love to listen to music. It's jukebox time, huh? And for most bars, having live music was either impractical due to space, or more reasonably, due to money, so they were left with whatever was played on the radio. That was until 1927, when the automated musical instrument company patented a machine that would house and play a large catalog of records the customer could choose from, all for a nickel. 
By 1940, the term jukebox entered the lexicon from black people, of course, because all of our good words come from black people. But don't tell white people that. It makes them mad. And that set the stage for the jukebox revolution of the 1950s. Problem was, those machines actually made quite a lot of money, and that money wasn't really going to the musicians or the record companies. In fact, it was mostly going to the mafia. The mob was big in the business, and the very nature of jukeboxes made them super attractive. It was all cash-based, and the jukes were in the kind of places that that respectable people didn't like to go to and had a revenue stream that could be easily funneled into mob pockets. If you had a jukebox in the early days, chances were good that it was owned by the mafia. Oh, thank you, Godfather. It was a long battle over jukeboxes and only ended because jukeboxes kind of fell out of favor and also they weren't nearly as profitable as, say, cocaine. Even today, the war continues to make sure the jukebox owners pay their fair share of the music. For a 2015 article in Philadelphia Magazine, quote, Bob and Barbara's, a South Philly shot and beer bar, got BMI's attention for playing Duke Ellington's Satin Dolls about 10 years ago, according to the owner, Jack Prince. Then the notices start piling up. You would think they're not interested in small establishments, but that's not true at all, said Prince. They sue you in federal court, and they have big-time lawyers and all that. I can't even imagine what it would cost to defend yourself in federal court. So Prince, like many others, settled, filled out a questionnaire about the bar's music usage, and began paying three licensing companies the amounts they asked for. He says they pay between $600 and $1,000 a year to each organization, unquote. And that pod, friends... This is why today, when you walk into a bar and there's music playing, there's a bartender surreptitiously playing Spotify on their phone, which is totally legal right up until the time you say, hey, uh, could you put on such and such song? And you do. And then, bam, they're getting fucking busted by BMI for running a fucking illegal jukebox. Happens all the fucking time, and that's why your bartender will not play a song for you on their phone if you ask, because they don't know that you're not a fucking narc. Honest to God, most bar owners are more afraid of B&I than they are of the state liquor board. Oh, and in case you were wondering, those internet jukeboxes that now dominate bars instead of bars that have CDs or records in theirs, that's why we have them. The bars pay a pittance if they pay anything at all for them, because all the money's made when drunk girls play the same damn songs over and over again. And for a little extra fee, the internet jukebox company will sell the bar an override switch so they can skip it or turn it off. True story. Buy your bartender a shot and ask them. They'll tell you. And then things were stable for more or less a couple of decades. Everyone was getting paid, at least if you were white enough, and the music industry was making what can only be termed a... Uh, That's still a shit ton of money, okay? Yeah, and everyone thought the golden years would last forever. But technology marches ever forward. Soon enough, the next great threat was on the horizon. Going back to HaveYouHeardIt.com, quote, In 1963, while vinyl was still the dominant medium for music, Phillips introduced the music cassette which would eventually become popular as the compact cassette. It was smaller, cheaper, and much easier to use than reel-to-reel -reel tape, and thanks to open standards, other companies were encouraged to license it, 
which increased the speed of the spread of this technology. The cassette became the standard format for tape recording and thus the standard for music piracy in the 1970s and 1980s. A real mass market for home recording emerged. One could record LPs onto cassettes and swap these cassettes with friends. The cassettes could also be re-recorded, and by making mixtapes for friends and families, individuals for the first time could feel a sense of authorship. In 1983, partly due to the introduction of the Walkman, the sales of cassettes even surpassed the sales of vinyl, unquote. Like they said, reel-to-reel tapes existed since 1935, and it was wildly popular among audiophiles for the fidelity of the recordings, but they never caught on with the masses due to size and cost. And an 8-track tape had great sound, but you couldn't record over it, and you really just needed to be a long-haul trucker to get the benefit of having an 8-track. But then the cassette tape came along, and it offered a cheap-to-produce product that sounded good enough to have mass market appeal, and the record companies started releasing albums on cassettes in 1964. But then in 1971 came the advent of Dolby. And that removed the telltale hiss of recording on blank tapes and people began to realize they could easily make their own portable copy of their albums. Combine that with the arrival of the boombox offering the big sound of a stereo system on a portable form, and cassettes became a cultural thing. I made you a mixtape. Now one could easily make copies of music, arrange them, and distribute them in a cheap format that fit in the palm of your hand, more importantly, the Walkman you were carrying in the palm of your hand. And then someone did the unthinkable. They started selling dual cassette decks. And the record companies lost their goddamn minds. We're getting beaten by a bunch of worthless criminals. It was bad enough when people just recorded their vinyl onto cassette, but now they could slap their cassettes into one deck and a blank in the other, and then their worthless pirate friends could have a copy that the record company didn't get any money from? This... It's unacceptable. It was the United Kingdom that decided that they must do something, and what they did was come up with an ad campaign called Home Taping is Killing Music. Let me rephrase that. Home Taping is Killing Music, and it's illegal. And it was presented with a punk rock-looking logo featuring a skull and crossbones underneath a cassette. The campaign was ostensibly part public awareness to teach music fans that they were robbing the rich record companies of valuable profits and to lobby Parliament to pass a tax on blank cassettes to reimburse the record companies for their lost profits. That's some balls. Some balls. The campaign wasn't exactly a success, partly because the UK already had one of the lowest music piracy rates in the world, and also because such an ominous warning was patently ridiculous and the sort of thing musicians and their fans would roll their eyes to and make even more dubbed cassettes for their friends. From the website Diffuser.fm, quote, The dramatic tone of the campaign was also ripe for parody and opposition. A movement known as home taping is skill in music arose thanks to the invention and subsequent rollout of more sophisticated cassette recorders, which allowed people to create music at home. According to some sources, the phrase was coined by journalist Tony Hopkins. 
The Dead Kennedys mocked the campaign on the cassette version of his 1981 EP in God We Trust, Inc. Side two of the tape featured the phrases home taping is killing record industry profits and we left this side blank so you can help. The metal band Venom adopted the slogan to read home taping is killing music so are Venom, while Devo used the cassette skull and crossbones combo in his futuristic video for Time Out for Fun. As the 80s wore on, the copyright infringement hysteria eventually died down. Not only did CDs start to supersede cassettes in popularity, but a landmark court case involving Alan Sugar, of all people, helped to deflate the momentum. In 1988, CBS Songs sued Amstrad over its dual cassette deck and lost after UK courts ruled that whilst it's clear that the copying of copyright material without permission is an infringement in almost all jurisdictions, the provision of the service or equipment to facilitate such copying, where that service or equipment has other uses, may not be an infringement or illegal, unquote. The record companies would continue to moan about piracy for another couple of years until yet another technology advancement came along that changed the face of music once again, the compact disc. What's that? CD player. Now, CDs in no way stopped people from using and recording cassettes, but what it did do was convince all of fucking humanity that the way they had been listening to music was utterly inferior, and if they truly wanted to hear what music was supposed to sound like, well, they needed to go out and spend $400 on a CD player and $11.99 for every damn CD. And pod friends, that shit worked. Not only did we buy our new music on CD, we bought music we already had on vinyl and cassette on CD because you have not heard the Beatles' White Album until you heard it on CD even though every song sounds exactly the same. But everyone was making so much money. Even bands that didn't exist anymore had charting albums because everyone needed to buy Credence's Green River on CD. The irony, of course, being 30 years after CDs were released, all of us jackasses that sold our vinyl to finance buying CDs of music we already owned on said vinyl are now buying back our music on vinyl because sure, why the fuck not? It's all bullshit, but it was also fucking marketing brilliance. The good times could never end, and everyone knew it would last forever, right up until the time technology changed again. I like Napster. Exactly like Napster. And that is where we will pick up next week for part two of A Pirate's Life for Me. That is it for our show this week. Oh, this show took a little journey on me and started out with wanting to do a show about Napster, but then I thought, well, surely I can get two shows out of this topic because, you know, content. Then I went to Columbia House Records, which is a fun topic, and will definitely make an appearance next week, but not enough. But it wasn't enough to carry a full show. And then I started research about music piracy before the internet, and the next thing I know, I got this whole episode about the way we stole music before Napster. And they say I don't have a process. Speaking of a process, it's a pledge month here, and what the, what the hell were you thinking? And while, yes, we very much want your money at patreon.com slash podcast. We'd also love it if you legit recommended the show to a friend. Now, I know I like to goof on us being a shitty show that you would be crazy to suggest others listen to. And don't get me wrong, we totally are that show. But we're also kind of proud of our work because let's face it, 
this is the best we're ever gonna do. Keep expectations low and you'll have an easy time meeting them. So seriously, tell someone about the show or grab their phone while they're drunk, use their passed out fingers or sleeping face to unlock their phone and follow the show on whatever their podcast is. I'm being told that's probably illegal and you probably shouldn't do that. But you know what? Fuck it. Do it anyway. At the very least, shout us out on your social media so that others will find and follow the show. Speaking of social media, follow me at the Hull underscore podcast with the show name on Facebook. I often offer piracy tips, but more the high seas kind than the music kind because honestly, the RIAA still scares the shit out of me way more than the Navy. All of the shows are up for your pirating pleasure at whatthehellpodcast.com and we are a proud member of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network who reminds you not to take legal advice about music piracy from a drunk dude with a podcast. So for me, Dave... Yar, mateys. Deliver your mixtapes or be cut down by me cutlass bled soap. Producer, call me the dread producer. Gavin and all the fictional musical swashbucklers on this show, we want to say, be it rogue performances or photocopied sheet music. To me, hey, hey, blow the music industry down. Be it Lars or James, their files we won't delete. Hey, hey, blow the music industry down. And we'll see you all next week. So I took you in all sail and cried way enough now. Give me some time to blow the man down. I hailed her in English. She answered me clear. What the hell were you thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings podcast network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as What The Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. Seltzer Kings Podcasts.